My name is Ruth McGowan, and I'm the Programme Manager at Tiger Dublin Fringe. That's Ireland's largest multidisciplinary arts festival. The call for submissions for our September festival went out earlier this week. Our challenge, together with the artists, is to make and present work that will feel contemporary in a time that we haven't yet lived in. September 2016, nine months from now. We've called on artists to envisage what futures we are propelled to by the decisions that we make today. We have asked them to be seers into a multiplicity of potential worlds based on the evidence of this world, this very moment. The title of our panel is History is Only Tidy in Retrospect. Flaubert wrote that ignorance of our history causes us to slander our own times. Those polished tales of the past, told by victors, look awfully clean and well thought out. But when it comes to writing history, to bringing about change, society rarely gets to begin from a blank page. We're always clumsily navigating a, a way forward from within a complex set of less than ideal circumstances. I'm so pleased to welcome three wise and exciting voices to speak to you on the subject of the messy present and the myriad possible futures. Stacey Gregg is a playwright and a performer from Belfast. Her previous work at the Abbey Theatre includes Shibboleth, Perv, and Cows Go Boom. Plays include Scorch, Lagan, Override, and Huzzies. And as a performer, Stacey's work includes Everything Between Us with Rough Magic, Moth and Pussy Riot at the Bush Theatre. Her television work includes Raw, Spoof or Die, and The Frankenstein Chronicles. She's currently under commission with the BBC, on attachment with Payne's Plough Theatre Company and Origin Films, and is a resident writer at Clean Break, working with women in the criminal justice system. Stacey's paper, Gen Ethics, Genomics, and Gina Davis, takes inspiration from Philip K. Dick, who said, if you think this universe is bad, you should see some of the others. Stacey can't be with us today, so leading Irish actor and friend of the Abbey Theatre, Cathy Rose O'Brien, will be presenting the paper on Stacey's behalf. Gabriel Gabadamosi is a poet, playwright, and essayist. His 2013 novel, Vauxhall, won the Tiber Jones Page Turner Prize. He was AHRC Creative and Performing Arts Fellow in European and African Performance at the P Pinter Centre in Goldsmiths. He was a Judith E. Wilson Fellow for Creative Writing at Cambridge University and Royal Literary Fund Fellow at City and Guilds of London Art School. His plays include Eshu's Faust, Shango, Hotel Orfeu, and his BBC Three radio play, The Long Hot Summer of 76, won the first Richard Immison Award. He is a director of Wasafiri Literary Magazine and a trustee of the Arcola Theatre in London. This afternoon, Gabriel will present a paper on the topic of fluidity of identity and culture entitled The Traditions of the Dead. Marco Halloran is an actor and a writer. Acting work at the Abbey Theatre includes The Shadow of a Gunman, Twelfth Night and An Ideal Husband. Other theatre work includes Dubliners and Dublin by Lamplight with Corn Exchange, Hay Fever and Lady Windermere's Fan at the Gate, Film and TV work includes Calvary, The Guard, Tonight is Cancelled, Adam and Paul, and the forthcoming History's Future. His screenplays include the beloved Irish films Adam and Paul, Garage, and the television series Prosperity. Mark also wrote the screenplay for the hotly anticipa anticipated film Viva, an official selection for this month's Sundance Film Festival. Mark's plays include Trade, The Head of Red O'Brien, and his role as cameo playwright for Dead Center's award-winning Lippy. He's currently under commission to the Abbey Theatre with a project called Life, and his paper, The Power of Listening, will share some of the research he has undertaken for that play. Please welcome our first speaker, Gabriel Gabadamosi. Um, <clears throat> good afternoon. I've got a bit of a cold, I'm just at the end of it, so I, I hope you can hear what I'm saying. Um, wh when I was asked to come along um, for the symposium, I was delighted, of course, but um, I kind of thought, well, where will I go with it? Uh, a symposium on change in Ireland. And I kind of thought, well, I, I imagine probably um, it'll have something to do with uh, this little boat. 
Now, I, I went to a kind of um, an event, a sort of an installation in London, where um, uh, migrants from refugees from the Middle East uh, were basically present, and you could go and you could meet them, you could talk to them. And while they were waiting around to be talked with, um, they were making sort of paper, plane, paper planes, the way you do full paper planes, and little boats, um, and you could pick them up and you could go, and I took this boat here. Um, it, it's got uh, pictures in it, um, people on boats, you know, swimming through barbed wire, you know, trying to get across towards the future. And so I thought, well, I'd bring it here, and I think now I'll probably leave it here so we can say it's been trod into the boards of the Abbey. But I don't know if it'll quite get across that moat, so I'll leave it on the edge. Yeah, um, I suppose I, I am a writer, I am, I am an artist sometimes. Um, and when I think about the, the artist as having any kind of oracular function um, to give us an idea about where perhaps we're going, um, I think of uh, my work in Africa where I, I suppose I've met many peoples who actually have oracles. So, for example, the uh, Zizuru, the Shona-speaking people of uh, Zimbabwe, they have an oracle. Uh, it's, it's music. It's called Dimbira. It's a kind of thumb piano. And the music tells them not only what's happening, but what's coming. And for the last wee while, it's been producing this Chimurenga music. Uh, Chimurenga music is basically a kind of sobbing, cadenced sound. It's very sad when you listen to it. It's war music, because they were fighting and continue to fight for their freedom. And the sound of that war music is of sobbing. But then closer to me um, is an oracle that I was uh, brought up with. Uh, it's the Yoruba oracle from West Africa. I'm trying to see if I can move this up so I don't have to bend down. There we are. Uh, yes, the Yoruba oracle is called Ifa. And it's, uh, it's a poetry. It's the, it's the poetry of the, the memory, the experience, the um, predictive poetry of the Yoruba people. Now, the thing to remember about them is uh, there was no writing amongst the Yorubas. It didn't come until the end of the 19th century with the missionaries. So this poetry was remembered. And you could, as an individual, remember parts of it. But actually, you had to come together with another person, other people, to complete the whole, rather as Fiek was describing at the beginning of today through Judith Butler, that way that when we come together, we complete this predictive poetry, and we are only whole when we come together. So that's basically my background. Um, but what I was asked to speak to uh, by Fiek and by Dominic coming here was uh, a particular short two-page document produced in Ireland in 1919. It's the... Uh, democratic program of the first Doyle. So in a sense, the Doyle in waiting. And it's got, it's got two interesting related clauses, one from near the beginning, the other one from very near the end. Um, and I'll read them, because they, they touch on the past, the present, and the future uh, as a continuum. It shall be the first duty of the government of the Republic to secure that no child shall suffer hunger or cold from lack of food, clothing or shelter. I was walking just down by the uh, Liffey on the other side of one of the bridges and I came across this installation, Somebody's Child. Um, 
and somebody very clearly is still very angry with the, the Irish state, the church, about the failure to go through with that clause. But the second, it shall be the duty of the Republic to prevent the shipment from Ireland of food and other necessaries until the wants of the Irish people are fully satisfied and the future provided for. Now, I think you can, you can hear how the trauma of the past has marked these people in the provision they make for the future. Famine is a fearful thing, let alone the shame that you can't protect your children. It'll live in your bones. But some people might say, it's locking the stable door after the horse has bolted, that you can't live backwards. That if these post-famine Republicans wanted change for Ireland, that change cannot take its poetry from the past, but only from the future. What future did they imagine for Ireland? One free from famine, surely, but one haunted by it. Now, I've slipped in a little quote already from Karl Marx about the poetry of the future. In the same place, he says this, the traditions of the past, of all the dead generations, burden like a nightmare the minds of the living. You can act, he says, you can make history, you can change things, but not in a vacuum. You've got all this dead weight on top of you. It's called variously your people, your history, your culture, who you are, the past, no change. If you legislate on the basis of those dead generations, if the dead rule, the dead are the future. They're not gone, they're not even dead. Now, I only point this out as a problem Ireland had. For the living to live, all the old fellas had to let go. 1916 and all that. Pierce, Connolly, Casement. Who they actually were, what they actually thought, scattered with quicklime. Bobby Sands. He had to say, no, if God can die, so can I, let me go. It's Good Friday, there can be peace. There'll be new life along in the morning, or the day after. There can be this forgiveness of our sins, not least in letting the dead bury the dead. Now, I'm sure you can all hear that this, too, is in the Christian logic of the culture. We haven't escaped the past, but now it serves the purposes of the present, an altered present, less heroic, less ready to sacrifice, less revolutionary. More about the money, the peace dividend, what Brother Marx would call an awakening of the dead to serve what's really going on in the present. Which brings us back, does it? To 1916 and all that. And the wake beginning again for Bobby Sands bringing back the great hunger, the terrible time tunnel labyrinth of how it feels to be Irish until we're clear what we want. Another way 
I hear it put in this blizzard and bluster of legislative change in Ireland is, we used to be romantic Republicans, but now we think. Okay, I think there's time on the clock. Can I say a bit more? Okay. When De Valera, uh, the other one with <coughs> an Irish mum and a foreign dad, was forming his Catholic corporatist state, like Franco, like Mussolini. You know, no stormtroopers, just priests, nuns. When he wanted to find out what the Irish people think, he said he'd look in his own heart. Well, let me do that. Let me look in my own heart. There's a terrible person lurking in me one of the victims of a terrible tragedy that began in the famine and continued into emigration. We died out in Ireland. We can't go back. We'd only end up, what, haunting the place? It's great to be in the theatre, isn't it? Yeah, like bad ghosts grumbling up out the bog with this peat-blackened skin. Now and then, in my kids, that ring of red hair about the bone. Remember that when you look at me. My people died out in Ireland. I'm a ghost. And you don't have to listen to me. In fact, uh, quote Marx generally and people stop listening. But yeah, sure. I'd love to step up onto the stage of the Abbey. It's like winning the lottery. Pick me, pick my play. Let me be the one to win. Except... I don't believe in my individual excellence or a special suffering or the luck of the Irish. I'm there with the feminists that it's not about being good or beautiful or Irish or useful or original or creative or half the population. It's about being chosen like a Protestant because you're chosen. It's about the power to choose and who has it. Now, I don't have any power and nor do I want it. It's not my power relationship with the Irish people I'm interested in. I'm interested in my mum, in that woman, and through her, through Gabriel Reedy, an actress, that woman who, who died, who walked these boards here at the Abbey. I'm interested in her people because, as my dad, a Yoruba man from West Africa, used to put it, your people help explain who you are. They complete you. Without them, you're adrift. You need them. So, what is it, I think, about change in Ireland? that I accept that that's what we can do in our relationships to each other as artists. We can help each other complete our stories going forward into the unknown. That the poetry of change comes not from the past, but from the future. And that the past and the future meet there in that migrant boat the migrant experience, that it's no longer ourselves alone. Because, look, there are so many others out there like us. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Gabriel and Mark. Please welcome Marco Halloran. You'll be delighted to hear that I'm going to keep this short um, um, because I'm not very interesting. But uh, I would just like to say my name is Marco Halloran. I am a man. I am a gay man. And really, abortion should be none of my fucking business. However, the play that I am writing at the moment 
is called Life, and it is about abortion. Or more specifically, it's about women who have traveled over the last two years to avail of abortion services in the UK. Um, one of the reasons I got involved, I'll explain all this uh, briefly, why I got involved, etc. but I will, most of what I'm going to say is actually just tell you the stories of the women that I met. I believe that as a writer, my biggest task is to get out of the fucking way, is to observe and listen and get myself out of the story. And that is why I felt that possibly it was the right thing for me to do to get involved in writing these particular stories. Also, nobody else was doing it. So I thought, why not? Um, so I'll begin this. As I said, it's quite short and most of it will be the stories. I believe that, that the most important thing that, you know, that I as a, as a writer can do is to listen um, or to observe. Um, so I shall commence my paper. I've never been to university, so I don't know what writing a paper is all about, but anyway. Um, <coughs> I first got involved in this project when it was still being conceived of, that's the one joke in the whole thing, so, um, <laughs> as a feature-length documentary film. The focus of that documentary was to be the laws on abortion in Ireland and the social history of the Eighth Amendment. But both the producer and the director of that film felt that there might be a need to fill in the documentary um, narrative with sections of drama reenactment showing us the real-life experiences of women who had travelled recently to the UK to avail of abortion services there. To that end, they hired me to meet with women who had recently made that journey and to write up their stories. The pioneering researcher Sheila Ahern was hired at the same time and together we set about gathering material. The stories we encountered and the scripts that I wrote ended up changing the focus of the project entirely and eventually led to the commissioning of this play by the Abbey Theatre. Uh, just to also state that one of the reasons that I found it necessary to write a play is that I believe that the debate around abortion in Ireland is held in the abstract. It is about two sets of people arguing about abstract ideas of morality, etc. And then I looked at the borderline between the state and the individual in the case of abortion legislation is inside a woman's body. And I found that very arresting and very frightening. I shall continue. <laughs> Abortion is probably the most divisive social issue that Ireland has ever had to grapple with. It is an issue that has repeatedly convulsed our society, and the debate around it is never less than toxic and polarised. There have been five referenda on the topic in the past 30 years, and still the issue remains live and dangerous. Any smart political player knows to avoid the subject like the plague, because in the abortion debate, there are no perceived winners. It would seem that the same thinking applies to writers and theatre makers. For an issue that has been so controversial and occupied so much of our time, it has never, to my knowledge, found its way onto the stage in Ireland. I always thought that very odd. However, as I began my research, I realized that it is an extremely challenging subject to tackle. How can you write drama about a procedure? And to what ends? Is this to be a pro-life or a pro-choice piece? I didn't particularly want to write either. I don't think drama is about taking sides. It is not our job to lecture or educate. It is our job, however, to bear witness and to raise questions. That is all. The question that I wish to pose is, why does any woman choose to have an abortion? This goes to the very heart of the matter, I feel, and indeed should be of interest to anyone, no matter what side of the debate they are coming from. Over a period of a couple of months, myself and Sheila met with women in cosy kitchens in South Dublin, in busy city centre cafes, on council estates in Dundalk, in safe, neutral venues. We heard of illegally procured arthritis medicines, family dysfunction, panic, shame, loss and economic hardship. In many cases, this was the first time that these women had spoken of what they had done or endured. The very interesting thing for me was that in each of these cases, there was a unique set of moral choices and dilemmas. Yet in this country, we attempt to meet these dilemmas and choices 
with one absolute answer. I will now outline three of the case studies we encountered. Um, it was a very odd, uh, these meetings with these women were so intimate, at times so emotional, at other times quite hilarious, um, but I found them to be a revelation um, that there are 140,000 women in Ireland who have travelled and, and availed of abortion services in the UK and we don't hear their stories is, is quite alarming. Um, also, there was just funny little incidental details that I learned along the way which kind of blew my mind, like abortion clinics in Liverpool offer a special rate to Irish women. It's kind of hilarious and, and, and yet so ridiculous, but anyway. The first woman I met was a young woman called Kelly. Um, I've changed names and uh, geographical details just to, 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 to keep anonymity. But uh, Kelly I met in Sheila's kitchen and we sat around, incredibly funny, lovely, lovely, lovely young woman. She sat and sort of didn't meet my eyes. Her, her hair hung over her, her, her face a little bit as she spoke and she held an apple in her hand and with her fingernail, she kept pitting out little bits of the apple in concentric circles so that by the end of our discussion, I thought that the apple looked like a hand grenade. <coughs> Kelly was 20 when she became pregnant. She lived on a poor estate on the outskirts of a small Midlands town. She was beginning to find and plot a life for herself when it occurred. She was doing work experience and had a one-night stand with an emo lad at a Christmas party in some shitty disco somewhere in Monaghan, is how she described it. In fact, she said the weather was really terrible at the time and she went back to his apartment and he kissed her and she said she'd never really been properly kissed before and she was stunned that someone would actually want to do that with her. She also said she woke up the next morning and the whole landscape had turned silver with frost and the lake had frozen over and he tried to edge her onto the lake that was frozen to see whether it would take her weight. I found that image incredibly arresting as well. She told me that she had been surprised that he had kissed her at all. She was not used to such attentions. Indeed, she told me that she was not one of those girls. When they were all 15, she said, when the rest of the girls from the estate were being picked up in cars by the married men in the town and fucked behind the factory, the worst thing I ever did was do lookout. I wasn't one of them. At work, morning sickness had set in, but she did not have the money until the following payday, it being January, to go buy a pregnancy test. A fella at her work, a near stranger, noticed her upset, and when she confessed her worries, offered to lend her the money. He also said, you can come back to my flat at lunchtime so we can do it, and she sat and joked with this guy whilst they sat waiting for the, the test result to come through. The test was positive. She was still living at home with her mother and stepdad. She told them early the following week and said that she wanted an abortion. Her mother tried to dissuade her and said that they would obviously support her and they would put her name on the housing list. But she told me that the one dream she'd always had in her life was to get out of this town and move to Dublin. Her mother had reservations but eventually supported her, her daughter's decision. They had to scramble to be able to afford the cost of travel, etc. Kelly's mother borrowed most of it from her own sister, and Kelly herself ended up having to hawk her moped around the town and sell it in order to afford her abortion. The procedure took place in Liverpool. They went over and back on the same day. Um, they recognised a lot of the faces on the early flight at the clinic uh, when they got there. Uh, the procedure took place in Liverpool. Kelly was surprised to hear that the clinic gave special prices to Irish girls. There were other Irish in the waiting room, including a teenager who had made the journey all on her own. She was 16 or 17, I think. Kelly and her mother travelled over and back on the same day. Whilst Kelly was having her procedure done, her mother went away and bought her a sandwich and a bottle of Coca-Cola. Um, she says that that was the worst part of the thing for her mother. She fe felt having to leave her daughter, them having no support. Um, um, before boarding the, the, the return flight, her mother turned to her after what had been a couple of hours of silence and said, forget all this now, leave all of this behind us in England. 
The second people I met were Helen and James, a married couple who had been looking forward to having their first child. Helen was 21 weeks pregnant when she found out her fetus had Edwards syndrome and a heart defect. Um, the prognosis was death in utero or immediately at birth. She and James had their regular scan in the maternity hospital, which showed up the um, abnormality. They were told they would have to wait three weeks for confirmation as they were public patients. This w could be done privately by paying 250 euros for the test, which they scrambled together. Uh, they were both devastated. They only saw a consultant once and she told them that some people in your position would choose to have a termination. Nobody ever used the word abortion. The termination could not happen in Ireland, they were told, and they would have to travel. Helen was now 22 weeks pregnant and the cutoff point in the UK for abortion is 24 weeks, so they had to make a decision fast. The fetus had started to move and Helen was starting to show. She described her pregnancy like a ticking time bomb. Never knowing just when the baby was going to die, she couldn't face into work every day and her colleagues all thinking that, something was going that everything was going really well. She also said to me that she and her husband wanted to show mercy to this child that they loved incredibly. Um, it was an incredibly emotional meeting, is all I can say. One of the midwives in the hospital suggested that they go to the Irish Family Planning Association where they, do go, where they can get practical advice and information about costs, etc. It was here that they got the information on the procedure that would be available to them in the Liverpool Women's Hospital. The Irish Maternity Hospital would not give her medical files directly to the hospital in Liverpool. So they faxed them to the Irish Family Planning Association, who then faxed them on to Liverpool. Her records were illegible by the time they reached the UK. The whole process made them feel like they were doing something wrong and secretive. They had to spend five days in the UK because Helen wanted to give birth to her child. Um, rather than go through an evacuation process. In the hospital, she was first given an injection to stop the baby's heartbeat, a very traumatic experience, she said. They spent the day wandering around the unfamiliar city or sitting in a tiny hotel room. They felt very isolated from their friends and from their family. The next day, Helen was given drugs to bring on labor. She was very sick with the drugs. The fetus was delivered and weighed 450 grams and was female. They named her Aoife, and the hospital took footprints and photographs to give them. The remains were cremated because in the UK they cannot offer a death certificate to a child that is delivered in this manner, or a fetus that is delivered in this manner. It means that the remains cannot be brought home to Ireland. So they were made to say goodbye to the remains in the hospital, and they would then be uh, cremated and posted back to her. This too broke their hearts. It would have been, uh, as I said, illegal to bring the remains home with them. A man, um, Helen described the journey home uh, as, I remember there was a really long line for security. I was bleeding. I could feel the blood coming out of me. And I really thought I was going to faint. But I thought, if I faint, they won't let me on the plane. And I won't be able to go home to my home. I just wanted to go home and get in my bed and pretend it all hadn't happened. But we just had to get on that stupid plane and they're selling scratch cards and there's people on their way to a fucking hen party and I was just sitting there and our worlds had just ended. The staff in the hospital in Liverpool told them that there were, they saw many Irish couples in a similar situation. Helen described the staff there as really helpful and compassionate. The abortion cost them 2,360 euros for flights, hospitals, uh, hotel, etc. The final and a short uh, story is of Karen, who was 37. She had a one-night stand with a guy she was in the musical society with, and uh, they weren't going out. She took the morning after pill, but it didn't work. She totally panicked. She couldn't believe she was pregnant. She had an 18-year-old son who was already facing into his leaving certificate and she had lost her job and also the house where they were staying and she had just moved back to her parents' home to live in the box room. She felt miserable, she was in debt and she thought having another baby was terrifying. 
A friend of hers told her about a certain type of arthritis drug that could induce a miscarriage. She told me the information about this is easily available on the internet. Karen checked it. The drug is only available on prescription, but her friend had worked in an old folks home and had got the tablets for her. On Valentine's Day, the 14th of February, she was six weeks pregnant. She took 36 tablets over a three hour period. The next day she miscarried. In the meantime, she had a new job and was starting the day after the miscarriage whilst bleeding badly and feeling miserable. She was in a blind panic and hadn't thought the medical side effects of taking the drug or any possible side effects. She didn't care if she died. She was offered a way out of her immediate problem and she took it. Um, of all the stories that I met, the only one that was actually going to be affected by the legal changes that were brought in by the um, Protection of Life During Pregnancy Act is the final one. She would now be subject to a 14-year prison sentence. Um, I believe as a writer that all I could do was sit and listen and then try my best to write them up. Thank you. Thanks so much, Mark. And now, reading a paper by Stacey Gregg, please welcome Cathy Rose O'Brien. Genetics, Genomics and Gina Davis. In 2003, the Human Genome Project published the data on the human genome at a cost of $2.7 billion. A genome is an organism's complete set of DNA. Each genome contains all the information needed to build and maintain that organism. Genome sequencing is a process that determines the complete DNA sequence at a single time. By 2009, the race was on to provide genome sequencing on a commercial basis, heavily backed by venture capitalists, hedge funds and investment banks. By 2013, 23 and me were marketing a genetic self-tester kit for under $100. In 2014, regulators ruled the Google-backed company illegal in the United States. This was due to the untested nature of their service. Undeterred, 23andMe launched the following year in Britain and was made available in high street shops such as Superdrug. Inexpensive genome sequencing was a major accomplishment, not only for the field of genomics, but for human civilization. Using this data, healthcare professionals and genetic counsellors predict what diseases a person may get in the future and minimise that disease through personalised preventive medicine. This marked a significant leap forward for the clinical genetic revolution. The Angelina Jolie-Pitt case of 2013 was an early indicator of this trend. Upon discovering she had the faulty BC BRCA1 gene and a high risk of contracting cancer, Jolie-Pitt underwent a double mastectomy. Preventative therapies and surgeries became standard practice and monetized. Gene therapy targets egg and sperm cells, known as germ cells. There are two types of gene therapy, somatic and germline. Germline gene therapy, or GGT, allows the inserted gene to be passed on to future generations. This is a form of genetic engineering. The modified genes appear in all succeeding generations. Early gene therapy trials resulted in deaths due to complications, but by the 2010s, gene therapy was being used to treat colour blindness, HIV and leukaemia. Gene therapy includes treatment for infertility. In 2012, experimentation on mice proved fertility could be restored using the CRISPR method. Researchers discovered it was possible to use skin cells to make egg and sperm cells and the 21st century saw a radical shift in terms of traditional parenting and family units, which in turn set up conditions for a, revolu a revolution in female equality. Regarding life extension, in September 2015, Elizabeth Parrish became the first person to undergo anti-aging gene therapy. Athletes adopted gene therapy technologies to improve performance. Gene doping became a reappropriated term levelling the playing field with all athletes receiving equal access to doping. 
With genome sequencing made cost-effective, Illumina's CEO, Jay Flatley, stated in 2009 that a complete DNA readout for every newborn is feasible and affordable. And by 2019, it had become routine to map newborns' genes. However, potential downsides include genetic discrimination, loss of anonymity and psychological impacts. Ethical guidelines for predictive genetic testing of children had more to do with protecting their privacy and autonomy to know or not to know their genetic information than with the technology that makes the tests themselves possible. For example, while 23andMe's emphasis was on self-discovery and ancestry, early problems were noted when law enforcement demanded a transparency report following a lead in a 2015 homicide case. The police wanted to cross-reference their own undeclared genetic databank with 23andMe's databank. Data harvested by 23andMe was publicly available, but anonymized as stated in the terms and conditions. However, anonymity becomes largely redundant once an individual's genetic data and online data exhaust is aggregated. Thus, 23andMe was ultimately not anonymous at all. This is a clip from back in the year 2013 of 23andMe's CEO. So did you ever even consider selling the company? Like seriously no. consider that? The idea that the consumer is empowered and that genetic testing is going to be a foundation for healthcare in the future is just core to my being. And I'm wedded to this company for the rest of my life. So I was, I'm not interested in selling and I wasn't interested in ever sort of closing up shop and saying, ah, oh, this is too hard. Right. It was just a question of saying, you know what? We entirely need to refocus. We need to hire the right people. We had a major miscommunication. We need to make sure that we're actually executing the right way. Do you see though Google and Calico as competition? Uh, no. Everything that we do here is focused on genetics and engaging the consumer and making really interesting, engaging products for them. Calico also is purely focused on, I mean, they're, they're focused on, on the anti-aging. But I also, um, you know, I always wish all these companies well because I think it will expand the entire industry. And I want to translate all this information into really meaningful therapeutics so that we can then come back and say the same way hepatitis C has been cured, I want to come and say like, oh, you know, we developed the cure for lupus. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like when I think about my success moment, it will be when we have that kind of cure that came because like millions of people came together and they shared their data and because of that we were able to create something. I wonder, you know, some people have said, well, now I have all this data, maybe I'm 20% more likely to have this or 30% more likely to have that, but how actionable is it really? Or is it only in a very narrow set of, of circumstances or situations where you actually will change your behavior based on something that you know about yourself? So today we're only giving the carrier status reports and I think so today we, without it, I can see people will get this information and they'll want to talk to their doctor, especially if they're interested in having children. Um, historically on the old product, what we saw, and Robert Green at Harvard was doing this analysis where he was looking at what people did with their information and it was over 40% of people were getting their data and then saying, it was the aha moment where they're right. saying, oh, I would like to actually make some kind of change. And they were coming to their physician and saying, what is it that I can do? And I think part of the problem in the healthcare system in general, and this is one of the things that got me excited about starting 23andMe, is that we don't know how to monetize prevention. And so <clears throat> it was never a case of not having the technology, only whether it would be ethically advisable to proceed without great consideration. And then there was the issue of human genetic engineering. Genetic engineering is used to change physical appearance, metabolism, mental faculties such as memory and intelligence. Ethical claims about germline engineering include beliefs that every fetus has a right to remain genetically unmodified that parents hold such rights, and that every child has the right to be born free of preventable diseases. For adults, however, genetic engineering is seen as another enhancement technique to add to diet, exercise, education, cosmetics, and plastic surgery. As early in the history of biotechnology as 1990, the scientific community was opposed to attempts to modify the human germline. However, resistance often came from little more than advisory boards. In March 2015, scientists urged a worldwide moratorium on germline gene therapy. They stated scientists should avoid even attempting in lax jurisdictions germline genome modification for clinical application in humans, 
until the full implications are discussed among scientific and governmental organizations. Nevertheless, the following month, April 2015, researchers reported attempts to edit human DNA. As early as 2013, GenePeaks was launched in tandem with the first 23andMe consumers. The GenePeaks app invited potential couples to input their genome data in order to predict the makeup and potential of their offspring. Early predictions could be made regarding the child's predisposition to physical activity, patience, addictivity, and so on. By 2020, what was once negatively stigmatized as designer babies had become common practice. China, regarding the global moratorium on GGT, was first to publish a breakthrough in human fertility. This spelled the obsolescence of sperm. As women achieved fuller equality, so advances were made in reproductive rights, egg freezing, egg sharing, qualified parthenogenesis, um, in the field of media and entertainment, and in a remarkable instance of art mirroring life, a research initiative between the UNESCO Equality Advisory Board and the Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media, launched a body of research that sparked an overhaul of representation of women in the media, much like her underrated 2017 movie, Women at Work. <laughs> the um, Davis overhaul and subsequent proliferation of women on our screens and in producing roles would have far-reaching consequences. Gina, there. And there. In the following decades, the ascendance of female equality coincided with global destabilization. As late capitalist inequality soared, countries across the globe experienced rising levels of militarization. Protest and violence, the dominance of so-called default white man, went into decline, much like the Roman Empire. It would, seem that the, it would seem that the neoliberal enterprise of a fully financialized genomic industry had spelt perversely the very conditions that would lead to the decline of the patriarchy. Men's rights activists, or advocacy groups known as MRAs, grew in power and size through the 2030s and the 2040s. Notable lone white shooters would often cite MRAs' core grievances. In a quote from the New York Times, Julian LeBlanc, author of I Told You So, and former mayor of Texas, wrote, these mutant lesbian social justice warriors will not be happy until they have destroyed men. LeBlanc was not simply pandering to widespread feelings of emasculation. The convergence of an increasingly female population with widespread GGT coincided, or possibly contributed, to rising occurrences of variant female sexuality, many of whom could be termed, given their genesis under lab conditions and GGT mutants. Truly, with these advancements in mind, the April 2054 words of Hillary Clinton ring true for all of us gathered here today. We are all mutant lesbians now, LOL. <laughs> to finish, we live in uncertain times. It is always worth reflecting on history to commemorate and interrogate the achievements and idiosyncrasies of chapters past, those critical years, the 2010s. One wonders how it must have felt to be witnessing a revolution that would change the course of humanity. I'd like to leave you with an archival artifact, a favorite of mine, featuring a historic, iconic male. For all of our advancements, he was, in my scientific opinion, a true superman of his pre-genetically enhanced era. Thank you. Time goes by. 
Thank you. I think all symposia should come with a side of Patrick Swayze. So what Stacy and Cathy Rose have, I think, reminded us of so clearly is the vital role that theatre or film or sci-fi has to play in presenting sort of alternate worlds and alternate realities. And I think that both of your writing actually often presents alternative viewpoints and offers alternative worlds, and your characters can often speak from outside the conventional narrative. And I wondered if you'd like to speak to that a little bit about how you choose who gets to speak and which side of the story to tell. Um, I think that one of the things that a writer has to do is to, 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 to uh, spot what are the cracks in society, what are the fault lines, and, and go and write deep down into those. So usually in those places you meet people who are marginalized or who, who are being pushed by, by those who wield power into certain areas or who have no voice and so you know you write the, vo the, the, the you write those voices um, is this on yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think it's true it, it it simply is the case for me as a writer that I fell into uh, a space in which um, I was both within and outside of my society um, I remember I went to uh, Cambridge University and in the three years I was there, I never met another black British person. Um, and so simultaneously with being this kind of uh, Cambridge student who has to leave a kind of a working class black Brixton upbringing, um, I also realized I was part of a kind of a Yoruba tradition, uh, an Irish emigrant tradition. Um, I for some reason very early spoke French and took it to French West Africa um, and lived in, in North Africa because I looked like a, a Moroccan and everyone expected me to be a Moroccan uh, and I spoke Moroccan like a Moroccan who's slightly sick. Um, so uh, the ventriloquism of, of me as a, as a writer, as a personality, is that fluidity is just something I fell into and I take it as a, a given when I observe it um, in, in other artists. Um, I, I admire it because it's a, a very brave thing to break your dependence on your language, your culture, your identity, your moorings. You can lose a lot, but you can gain so much. Uh, so you both work across media and in different forms, different uh, styles and different genres of work. And I'm interested that all three of your pieces, I think, seem to touch on the fact, as does the whole symposium, that uh, the importance of a multitude of voices and a multitude of intelligences are important in documenting a time or a movement. And I wondered, um, we're in a theatre today, do you think theatre as a form um, is perhaps somewhat limited in that way? Do you think a novel or that a, f a film is more able to convey that sort of multitude of experiences or not? Um, uh, I, I, well, I think uh, live theatre is a fantastic form. Um, and if I'd had slightly more time, I, th I think my basic position about a theatre like the Abbey would have become clearer. It's great that there's uh, an Abbey theatre, but um, it's equally great that the Abbey theatre is there to distract from the spaces that open up outside of the Abbey. Uh, that happen in people's living rooms, you know, living room theatre. Um, but it's not just about kind of live performance and the way kind of, as it were, uh, culture and the developments within culture can be manifested through the body, through presence, in, 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 in as it were, uh, encounters, in, in, in readings, in, in meetings, in, in dinners, as well as performances on the street. Um, I would also say that there is something about all of the art forms that they all provide different exits from prisons, from trapped spaces. Um, uh, uh, let me give uh, an example of what I mean. In the 1980s, there was uh, the war going on in Ireland and bombs going off in London. And there was our mum saying to all of us, shh, uh, you're not Irish, you're black. Uh, because it was tricky. And then she died. And I thought, 
Okay, so Ireland sent her out um, at 17 without an education. I taught her arithmetic to help with the shopping. Um, she never went back, and now she's dead, and this war is going on, and you can't be Irish. So I went around the back of the Arts Council and said, look, uh, I may look black to you, but I'm Irish, and uh, the Irish are the largest and oldest ethnic minority in Britain, and if you don't give me the money to set up an Irish uh, literary festival in which I pair them with other ethnic minorities, um, I'm going to blow the whistle on you. And so they gave me an awful lot of money. Um, and I got all the poets I'd ever heard of in Ireland, you know, Maeve McGucky and Elena Quillanon, uh, Nuala Nagonal, Muldoon, uh, Mahan. They all came um, saying, who's that black guy trying to get us over to London? And when I really liked them, I said, you're here for my mother's wake. So for my personal family, for the people who knew my mother, they were seeing all the poets of Ireland come over for her wake. Right? In the politics of London, during a war, suddenly Irish poets were present, mapped with Ben Okri, uh, Jean Binterbreeze, Breeze, mapped with uh, Abdullah al uh, mapped with all of these extraordinary poets from around the world. So it was a safe, it was a constructive space. So I make my work on those different levels. That's how I make it. And it usually involves seeing what the problems are, smashing a fissure and going through it and coming around the back and coming up with something new. And I think all of the art forms provide you with that possibility. I, you know, I, I go between theatre and, and film, and uh, film, there's a very much, uh, there's a received wisdom about form, and you don't, you don't play around with that, or you don't get your film made, so it's a three-act structure, blah, blah. I think the glory of theatre is that form is, can be so many different things. It's always playing with the form of which it delivers stories, and I find that incredibly exciting. Um, and they, they're willing to take risks in that way. And I know we have to wrap up, so one final question is, um, Gabriel, you talked about uh, completing each other's histories and completing each other's stories. Uh, and you know that's something that art kind of does best. And as a writer, sometimes you choose your subject matter or and different times your subject matter chooses you. And Mark, you talked about the fact that life is not necessarily a story that you ever thought you'd find yourself telling. Is that set of responsibilities different when you're telling a story that's outside of your own lived experience and you're putting words in characters' mouths? Well, I think that the, the, the writers are always told, write, write what you know, which I, I think is rubbish. You should write from what you know. And so the part of the job of the writer is to empathize and imagine somebody else's life. So it isn't, it isn't you know, that's your job, you know, you just, you just gotta do it. It can be difficult because, you know, uh, Sitting down, listening to stories and blah blah, you've got to, you know, see what brought these people to, to this to this thing. But that's your job, you know. Well, I, I think just uh, two responses to that. The the last sort of large project I did was a novel. Um, I don't really write novels, but I made this novel because my children are young, and I thought we're not long lived in my family, so I'll kind of just take down the trees, make this paper boat, and float it, and uh, they'll come across it when they've grown and it'll be their voices as children listening to me remembering my voice as a child. I'll mix our voices up and they'll catch me further on down the line. But to do that, to talk about my childhood, I went to all of my brothers and sisters, we're six of us, the uh, Dublin Yoruba family, the Akinyelis, there were 10 of them. Uh, but the whole area I grew up in, I, I went to people and said, you give me your stories about this and I shall put these stories into a book. So it's not just my voice, it's other people's voices. And I negotiated that with them, uh, that, that structure. But then the second part is what Fergus said earlier on today. He said, look, here we are in Ireland, and as you imagine it in Ireland, here we are flourishing. There's some question about whether people, everyone in um, kind of temporary accommodation in hotels is flourishing in Ireland, but he's still very kind of clear that there needs to be a porousness, an openness to the other. What lies beyond our national or borders or the borders of our social consciousness? 
Um, we have to be open to the other. We have to listen. Don't listening. We'll leave it there. Thank you so much, uh, Gabriel Gabadamosi, Marco Halloran, Stacey Gregg, and Kathy Rose O'Brien.